Hello, and welcome to Can't Make This Shit Up, a true crime podcast. I'm Cassie, a true crime enthusiast. And I'm Mark, her dad, a true crime professional, currently a traffic homicide detective in South Florida. And we hope you guys enjoy. Okay, so this week, we will be covering the disappearance of Oliver Munson. So this case was actually suggested by one of our listeners, Stephanie. So hi, Stephanie. Hello, Stephanie. Thanks for listening. I got some of my information from an episode of Unsolved Mysteries with Dennis Farina, and it's season four, episode 20. I also got some information from several news articles, which I will post in the show notes. There's not a whole lot of information about this but I pulled together every little bit I could find. Okie dokie. Apparently our listeners really like Unsolved Mysteries because when I look up the majority of their case suggestions, there's always an Unsolved Mysteries episode on that case. You always find it there. (laughs) Which I'm not that mad about it because I love Unsolved Mysteries. Right. Okay, so Oliver Munson was one of six children. And although he was known to be kind of a loner, he was very close to his parents and his siblings. He graduated from University of Maryland at East Shore, and at the age of 39, he had been teaching middle school for 15 years and was living in Catonsville, Maryland. Hopefully I said that right. It's a suburb just outside of Baltimore. He taught industrial arts and was beloved by many of his students and would even take several of his students bowling twice a week. So sounds like a good, solid teacher. So far, yeah, so far, so good. One of the greatest loves of Oliver's life were cars. So Oliver loved buying various vehicles and then he would fix them up in his front yard. So in his off time, when he wasn't working on cars, Oliver would visit with his mother and siblings who lived along the eastern shore of Maryland. In January of 1983, he came across an ad for the car of his dreams, a red fully loaded Datsun 240Z. Oh my God, not a Datsun. A Datsun. I yeah. didn't know what it was, so I had to look it up. It's a, it's a nice little car, though. It's cute. Yeah. They were hot back in the day, like when Toyotas first came out. It was Toyota and Datsun taken over by, uh, by Nissan. The Datsun, it was a cute little red one. And when he came across the ad, he knew he just had to have it. So Oliver made his way into Baltimore, Maryland, to meet with the seller of the car, a man named Dennis Watson. After a brief exchange, Oliver purchases the Datsun and leaves, thinking he'd never see the man again. But unbeknownst to Oliver, the car he was purchasing had been stolen nearly three months earlier. Oh, nice. The seller, Dennis Watson, was the ringleader of an organized car theft ring. Oh, boy. Dennis owned a mechanic's garage, but he was using it as a front for stealing cars, and then he would break them down and then sell all the parts. Or, as he'd done with Oliver, if the vehicle was nice enough, he would simply resell the vehicle after he would fake ownership papers. Right. We call it revinning or chop shops do that. They'll take like they'll take a stolen car and they'll put a VIN plate on a like another similar car that's not stolen, but like old, so that that way, you know, it doesn't if we stop it and run it. It doesn't uh, come up as a stolen car initially. You have to do a little bit more investigation. So, Kind of smart. Works sometimes, but. 
despite the level of sophistication of Dennis Watson's operation, the police were on to him nonetheless. And prior to Dennis selling the car to Oliver, the police had been secretly surveilling Dennis and his associates as well as his garage. Okay. Finally, on March 16th, 1983, so that's only two months after Oliver had purchased his Datsun, once investigators felt they had enough evidence, they requested a warrant and they raided Dennis Watson's garage. Dennis was arrested and the police found a multitude of altered and illegal vehicle titles, partially dismantled stolen vehicles, and license plates from other stolen vehicles. A classic chop shop. When police began combing through the falsified documents, they came across Oliver Munson's name as he'd just recently purchased the Datsun from Dennis Watson. Detective Philip Goodwin with the Baltimore Police Department explained, quote, We continue to check paperwork. We find that Oliver Munson has a Z car. Not knowing at that time whether or not Oliver Munson had bought this car or if was involved with Dennis Watson, And as a result, we took the car as evidence until such a time as we could continue an investigation to determine what exactly was his knowledge of the car. When detectives arrived at Oliver's house, the car was sitting in the driveway, but Oliver was not home. So detectives made the decision to confiscate Oliver's vehicle and come back later to speak with him, hoping he'd be home at a later time. Following their repossessing of the car, Detective Goodwin did come back to Oliver's residence and interviewed Oliver in person at his home. He explained to Oliver that the vehicle he purchased had been stolen. Oliver explained to Detective Goodwin that he'd purchased the car for $1,200 and a few traded items. He also confessed that Dennis Watson had been the one to sell him the vehicle. He explained that he did not know Dennis Watson and had never met him previous to purchasing the car from him. Of the exchange, Detective Goodwin said, quote, My feeling was at that time, and still is, that he had bought the car thinking that the car was, in fact, a legitimate car. So, basically, poor Oliver was bamboozled. Yeah, it happens. I mean, that doesn't seem, I mean, I forget how much, how much a car would go for back then, but that doesn't seem unreasonable for that time frame. Like, if it's, the price is too good, it's, there's probably something wrong with it, and like, we've recovered, like, stolen cars where the person said, Oh, I bought it for like, you know, 2000 bucks, but it's a, you know, $25,000 car. And it's like, really, you think you can buy a, that kind of car for like two, like the people know they just try to play dumb or whatever. You know, it's like, come on, who's going to sell you a fucking $30,000 car for, you know, five grand doesn't happen. Yeah. They're just hoping it never comes back. Right. Unless it's, you know, stolen or, you know, something wrong with it. So. Detective Goodwin explained to Oliver that he would be subpoenaed to testify against Dennis Watson, and he would have to attest to the fact that he had indeed purchased the stolen vehicle directly from him. Detective Goodwin would later recall that Oliver seemed nervous to testify, but was aware that he had no choice but to comply with the subpoena. Following the repossession of his Datsun and his police interview, a year passes before the trial is set to begin. Three days before Oliver was expected to testify, on February 13th, 1984, at 7.50 a.m., he left his home in Catonsville, Maryland, for work as usual, as a neighbor would later attest to that. But that would be the last time anyone laid eyes on Oliver Munson. Oh, boy. His co-worker, Patrick Cisna, 
explained to Unsolved Mysteries, quote, Oliver would rarely miss school. And on that particular Monday, when he didn't arrive, some of the staff and the kids started to worry that this is not a usual practice for Oliver. And maybe something was occurring or something was wrong with him. In Oliver's 15 years as a teacher, he'd only ever missed four days of school and actually went a stretch of eight years without ever missing a single day. Oh. So he was devoted. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's a good record. <laughs> when Ellicott City Middle School contacted Oliver's family to see if they knew where Oliver may be, his brother James became immediately concerned. He tried several times to contact Oliver via phone that evening, but with no success. So the following day, James made his way over to Oliver's house to check on him. He said, quote, I just thought that maybe he was sick and I didn't know if he was unconscious or whatever in the house. I didn't know. However, when James entered Oliver's house, the house was quiet and undisturbed and Oliver was nowhere to be found. So James decided to report Oliver missing to the police. Three days passed and still no one had heard from Oliver until on February 16th, ironically, the day that Oliver was scheduled to testify, Oliver's car, a 1980 Ford Pinto, because remember, his other car got taken away. So this was his new car. Pinto. God. Yeah, he had a good old Ford Pinto. So the Ford Pinto was found three blocks away from his home, parked alongside Brayside Road. Weirdly, it was parked in the opposite direction from which Oliver would have had to go to get to his job. Okay. The right front tire was flat, but other than that, there was no damage to the outside of the vehicle. The police examined the tire, but strangely, it had no holes or damage, implying that the air had purposely been let out. The car's stereo was missing, but Oliver's school paperwork and his lunch were stacked neatly on the car's front seat. Once again, there was no sign that any sort of struggle had occurred. When Detective Goodwin was made aware of Oliver's disappearance, he was immediately concerned. He said, quote, at that time, I felt there was something wrong. Then the decision was made here that we were looking at a kidnapping or a homicide. Detectives immediately assumed that Oliver's mysterious disappearance had something to do with his agreeing to testify against Dennis Watson, and they began investigating him once again. They questioned Dennis Watson about Oliver's disappearance, but he adamantly denied any involvement. However, through their investigation, they began looking into Dennis's criminal history. They then discovered that in previous trials against Dennis, two other witnesses had also died under mysterious circumstances. All right. Organized crime, baby. Ten years earlier, on November 20th, 1973, another man, 29-year-old Clinton Glenn, had burned to death in a car which had been registered to Dennis Watson. Interestingly, Clinton had been scheduled to testify against Dennis the next day. This time, he had been scheduled to testify against Dennis the next day because Dennis had been involved in an armed robbery. Due to his death, Clinton was never able to testify. However, investigators were able to find a witness to Clinton's murder and eventually were able to indict Dennis for first-degree murder. But strangely, right before his murder trial, this witness also mysteriously died. Bum, bum, bum. This time as the result of a drug overdose. 
Because their case was severely handicapped by the death of their sole witness, the state had no choice but to drop the murder charges against Dennis Watson. That's how it works. And now, just before Oliver Munson was due to testify against Dennis, he too mysteriously vanished. Shocker. (laughs) Although police strongly suspected that Dennis Watson was involved, there was no evidence to prove so, and eventually their investigation began to run cold. That is until a man named Hilton Solomon, which, what a name. Hilton Solomon. Isn't that a cool name? It is. You don't hear that ever. Hilton Solomon reached out to them. Hilton explained to investigators that his car, a blue 1973 Datsun 240Z, so another Datsun, (laughs) was stolen only a few hours before Oliver disappeared. Two weeks later, on February 27th, 1983, he happened to spot his car parked along the edge of Lincoln Park in West Baltimore. So for our listeners, if anyone is familiar with the Adnan Syed case... That is the exact same park where Heyman Lee's body was found. Wow. Okay. So that park is known for hiding some bodies. All right, then. Note to self, don't go to that park. But how crazy is it that he, his car was stolen? He just happened to be driving around and was like, hey, that's my car. Yeah, that is odd. (laughs) After finding his car, Hilton called police and they took it into custody for processing. But when the vehicle was returned to Hilton, he found several strange items inside that did not belong to him. He discovered a hat along with several receipts with the name Oliver Munson on them. And the hat strongly resembled one frequently worn by Oliver. Oh, okay. So ironically, I had already chosen to do this case before this happened. But this past weekend, a guy was caught breaking into my car. But he was arrested, so uh, he didn't get anything. But it's just the irony that we're doing this case. And strangely, he left things in my car, too, because after the police left, I found a knife that he left and like just random stuff that I guess he had stolen from other vehicles. I don't really know. Yeah, he probably dropped it or was carrying it and set it down and was going to take it with him when he left or whatever. But so Detective Goodwin explained, quote, Hilton Solomon took his car home after it was released by Baltimore City and he decided to clean the car. While he was cleaning, he found several receipts from a video store. On these receipts was the name Oliver Munson. When we went down to look at the car, we looked underneath the seat, found a spent cartridge case. Mm. When police examined the vehicle, they immediately noticed a brownish stain along its front right side. Once police examined the receipts, they discovered red smudges across one of them. They immediately had the stains tested, and it turned out that they were, in fact, human blood, and it was O positive. This evidence solidified for police that Oliver had most likely been murdered. However, there were unfortunately no records which indicated Oliver's blood type. So the police were unable to confirm beyond a reasonable doubt that the blood was actually Oliver's. Wow, okay. Because also, this is before DNA. Yeah, back then, I mean, you know, then blood type, yeah. I don't think, like, randomly or whatever. I think it was specific, like, he went to the hospital or whatever. Yeah, so they couldn't find any, like, medical records or anything that had his blood type. Okay. Because of this, there was nothing further the police could do without locating a body. From the available evidence, Detective Goodwin theorizes that someone, most likely an associate of Dennis Watson, tampered with Oliver's tire so that as he drove it, it would become flat. He then believes that either two or three of Dennis's associates 
stole Hilton's car, and followed Oliver as he left for work. Once he pulled over to address his flat tire, Detective Goodwin believes the men also pulled over and offered Oliver assistance. At that point, the men somehow convinced Oliver to take a seat in the front seat of their vehicle, and one of the men then shot Oliver in the head from the back seat. From there, Detective Goodwin believes the perpetrators drove Oliver's body to Leakin Park and buried it. Others have suspected that his body may have been dumped into the Blue Mountain Quarry in Whitehall, Maryland. However, investigators have searched both areas and Oliver's body has never been located. Oh, geez. Okay. Others have theorized that maybe Oliver Munson left of his own accord to begin a new life, as he'd experienced several hardships leading up to his disappearance. His girlfriend had recently broken up with him. His house was pretty severely damaged due to water pipes bursting. And it was announced that Ellicott City Middle School would be closing and Oliver would be forced to find a new position elsewhere. One of Oliver's good friends even stated that he believed Oliver may have wanted to start his life anew and assumed a new identity in a completely different part of the country. The friend stated that he'd personally heard Oliver joke about doing so in the past. Hmm, okay. Ironically, Dennis Watson's trial for the car theft went on as scheduled despite Oliver Munson's disappearance. I think that, you know, if he indeed did kill Oliver, I think he assumed that without him as a witness, it would be like the previous case where it just was dropped. But they had enough evidence without Oliver. Oh, okay. Because remember, they had all the documentation that they had found in his garage. Yeah, because they raided the the mechanic shop or whatever. So he was kind of stupid if he thought that they were just going to drop the case without Oliver. Yeah, well, I mean, he got away with it a couple times before that. So, yeah, but eventually you get caught. So. So ultimately, Dennis pled guilty and was sentenced to 10 years in prison. Sadly, he was paroled early in 1989 after only serving five years of his sentence. And although Dennis is now walking among us as a free man, Oliver Munson has still never been found and was legally declared dead in 1985. On his death certificate, his cause of death is listed as presumptive homicide. Wow. Once DNA testing became more advanced, Police attempted to test the blood found on the receipts and within Hilton's car. However, it was determined to be too degraded to yield any results. Oliver's case is still open and police have been trying to find Dennis Watson, who they've been unable to locate since his release from prison. Really? As they'd like to question him further in Oliver's case. Yeah, so I guess when he, after he was paroled, no one's... At least no one claims to have seen him since. Right. He either either got disappeared or he disappeared himself and, you know, like took up a new identity somewhere else and whatever. But yeah, because potentially, I mean, even to even today, he could still be alive because he was probably only in his like 30s when all this happened. Yeah. So he would probably be 60s or 70s, potentially. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, most likely if if he wasn't murdered or, you know, something. Yeah. Yeah, it's possible he's still yeah, walking around somewhere. Suppose he could be a fan of our show. Well, if you're uh, if you're listening there, Dennis, uh, stop listening. Number one, because fuck you. And number two, <laughs> the police are looking for you, so uh, you might want to give Baltimore a call. Well, give us a positive review, okay? Yeah, give, don't forget the <laughs> review though before you stop listening. 
Not that we need a murderer's no, A-OK. Yeah, we don't. So Oliver's co-worker, Patrick Sisna, told Unsolved Mysteries, quote, it's been nearly 10 years since Oliver disappeared. And the kids at school, the ones who I keep in contact with, they'll always ask. That's one of the first things. And I just, I don't know. I don't have any answers to give them. Oliver's brother, James, said, quote, in the last 10 years of my brother's disappearance, it's been a burden on the whole family. Today, my mother is gone. She worried every day. Every night she prayed and cried, wondering about where her first son is. If anyone knows or seen anything that day, please, please help the family get the burden off their chests. Unfortunately, Oliver's mother died in 1990, never knowing what happened to her son and never being able to lay his body to rest. Wow. The case is still open. If anyone has any information concerning Oliver Munson's disappearance, they're encouraged to call Baltimore Metro Crime Stoppers at 866-756-2587. And you can remain anonymous if you choose. Yeah. So, so Dennis, if you're listening, you could be anonymous. Just call. And at least yeah, tell them where the, the body is. Yeah, let the family know something. Jeez. So they can at least, you know, move on from that part of the this horror. So um, what's your investigative opinion on this one? Um, I mean, yeah, yeah. You have the car, you have the, I mean, I, I hate to stereotype, you know, but when you're dealing with criminals that are, you know, in organized elements, you know, organized crime, whether it's the mob or or just organized groups of people, like in this case was a, stolen vehicle ring or whatever you know they generally hang out with other like-minded people so the potential to silence people is always there to hurt people or or whatever so um there's some pretty strong evidence there the you know the casing the found under the seat the blood or the the stain that was you know confirmed to be blood they just couldn't test you know for what type it was or whatever so that's a very plausible scenario that the police came up with that they flattened his tire he needed help and they either coaxed him in under the guise of helping him and giving him a ride or they forcibly if there was you know a couple guys forcibly put him into the into the car however they would probably be more of a struggle or more evidence um if he was taken forcibly from you know from the location of where his car was or or there would be some type of you would think damage not necessarily but so more than likely hey we'll give you a ride up so you can make a phone call whatever because again back then no cell phones you know yeah, um, I kind of forget that, that there's like no cell phones and stuff. Yeah. And um, so you would have to dr- at least drive up to, you know, corner store, gas station or something to get a payphone to at least call for a tow truck or, or something. So, so I think that's very plausible scenario of events that occurred, you know, for his disappearance. But, you know, the fact that he did talk about disappearing or, or you know, changing his life and everything. I mean, you can't rule that out either, but you would think because he ha- does have family, you know, he had a brother, his mother was still alive, that at some point he would reach back out to them if he was alive somewhere else and at least say, hey, I'm doing okay, you know, whatever. But the fact that that never happened steers me towards, you know, believing that there's foul play for sure. So I personally don't think he just like disappeared on his own accord. Yeah. I think I think that's kind of silly. I mean, don't be wrong. It's happened like in the past. I think that's more Hollywood than reality. I mean, uh, yes, I'm sure historically there's been people that have just said, fuck it and gotten up and left and, you know, done their own thing or or restarted somewhere. But 
somebody who's established in the school and, and a good teacher and kind of established in the community there and was well known and um, dedicated to his students and stuff like that. You know, it's it's like when you have when we have these cases where the, the family says, you know, like you have like, let's say twin sisters or whatever. It's like we speak every single day. The minute one day goes by that they don't call, they know something's wrong because people are creatures, you know, humans are creatures of habit and they get into routines and they do, you know, certain things. And when it's disruptive, people notice and naturally they don't, you know, something happens, whether it's an injury, whether it's illness, sickness, some type of criminal intervention, you know, criminal happening or something, you know, so it's norm. So he was very close to his mother because his brother said that he would call his mom every morning before work, like every single day. Yeah. See, when, when you have somebody or a family that has patterns like that, or people that are, you know, that are, con- I don't want to say conditioned, but that's their, you know, they wake up, they get ready, they have breakfast, they call their mom. Hey mom, how you doing today? I'm going to work, whatever. Talk to you later. You know, just a simple, just to make sure, especially if like the mom was alone or, you know, maybe, I don't know if she was single or if she was still married or, but, you know, as parents get older, you know, you want to check on them and stuff. So I find it very hard to believe that he would, you know, just disappear and not at least tell her because he knew if he was that close to her and he knew it, he knew that he would break her heart by doing that. So I don't, you know, I don't believe it. So. Well, the only thing that the only reason why I, I sort of don't be wrong, I definitely think that Dennis Watson probably most likely had something to do with it. Because what are the odds that some other random criminal would just like decide to murder him randomly? Right. But I don't know that I think that the way the detectives believe it occurred, it necessarily occurred because okay. the spot of blood that they found in it, in, they, they found very little blood in the vehicle. There was a spot of blood behind the seat and stuff, but it was so small that the car owner didn't even see it. Right. Um, that's when true. he was cleaning out the car, the car owner didn't even see it. And the police found it when they got there. So right. to me, I'm like, if you shot someone in the back of the head, I feel like, which I, I mean, I don't really know, you know, blood splatter and all that and how much right. it bleeds, but I would assume that there would be a lot more blood than there actually was. Did they say what caliber casing was found? No, they didn't. I mean, I'm sure they know, but that might right. be something that they're like withholding. Because like a smaller caliber, like I know, 22 caliber pistols notoriously have been used by hitmen and stuff. And a lot of times when they're like, if, if they're pressed against the head or, you know, the person is shot in the head, the round will stay in the head. It won't necessarily go in and out. And if there's no exit wound, then there's naturally not going to be any blood. There'll be some blood from the entry wound, but all the trajectory and force and everything takes it inward. So it's not like there's an exit where the blood's going to have a chance to escape. So if it was a low caliber pistol, you know, that could, that could explain why there's only a drop of blood or, you know, a couple drops of blood. Naturally, if, if it's a high caliber pistol or there is an exit wound, you're going to have the blood pattern or blood splatter is going to be far greater than not having an, a, an exit wound. So I would agree with you on that part if it was a low caliber pistol, but, or he could have been shot outside the car and the blood could have been tracked in by the, like maybe the shooter was sitting in the car and the, the casing ejected. And I mean, there's a lot of scenarios that could happen. But if he was sitting, then they, well, no, because they would have transported him. They didn't find blood in the trunk or anything, huh? Mm-mm. Hmm. That's, I mean, the lack of blood evidence in the car, you know, than just a couple drops or, or little stains or whatever is a little hard to explain, especially if he was shot in the car. You would think that there would be more, even, you know, just driving him to wherever they were going to dump him you would think you would have some more. So 
it's hard to say with 100% certainty, like what the chain of events was, you know, that occurred to his demise, but it's a good working story to, you know, to start with, with what they had, you know, again, you have to like go out and get the uh, answers to the questions to try to put the whole story together. So, and without a body, you know, that it's huge. You get so much evidence off, you know, a victim that take cases like this, when you don't have a body, you're like searching for a needle in the haystack. So. Well, it's also interesting to me that Dennis Watson can't be found because you wonder, okay, did he just start like start anew? Cause he, obviously he's involved in, you know, criminality. So it'd probably be right. a little easier for him to get like a whole new identity than it would have been for like Oliver Munson. Or maybe they killed him. Well, and that's was going to be my next question is like, what if, what if he was offed? Cause he knew too right. much or for, or, you know, fucked over the wrong people or whatever. Maybe he snitched or maybe, you know, something happened while he was in prison. You know, he got out early. So how did he get out early? Was it, you know, good behavior or was it because he provided information and got less time? Like, you know, so that would be another thing to look at. But I think definitely he was involved, naturally, him and his, his group, only because it happened two times prior. And I don't, like I said, I don't, in the past, I don't believe in coincidences when it comes to stuff like this. Like, you know, that's. Things are done, they may be done accidentally, but they're done, you know, with purpose. And since he kept getting away with it, you know, getting rid of witnesses and getting off of, it makes sense that he would do it to this guy too. So, well, and the sad part about that is because I totally believe that that's what happened. I, like I said, I don't necessarily maybe believe in the way that the detectives say it happened, but I do right. believe he was murdered because of that. To silence him, yeah, for sure. But the sad part about that is, you murdered, you ended up murdering him for no reason because you still ended up going to jail for 10 years. I mean, granted, you ended up getting out early, but you know, right. you, en- you killed him to avoid jail time and you got it anyway. Right. Yeah. I mean, and see, that's the other thing that I would kind of like to know, which I couldn't find. So I, if anyone else can find it, hit me up. But the other thing I was curious about is, you know, how they said that Dennis Watson pled guilty. I wonder what, I guess what my question is, is did he decide to plead guilty prior to Oliver's disappearance or did he decide that after the fact? Because to me, that makes a difference because if he was already planning on pleading guilty prior to Oliver disappearing, then maybe there is a possibility that he had nothing to do with it because why, why would you murder someone when you're going to plead guilty anyway? Yeah. I mean, yeah, those are valid questions. I, I guess the thing you would have to, like, have to look at, at least knowing kind of the legal system and how it works down here. First of all, what were the original charges that he was arrested on? You know, like, was it that, you know, they raided his shop, they found all the stolen property. So was he like arrested for possession of stolen property, operating a chop shop, um, you know, grand theft auto, although like if there was like, let's say 10 charges and then they consolidated them all, say for him to plead guilty to, let's say only two charges. That's usually done way before it goes to trial, but sometimes it's done day of trial, like when it's being, you know, like when it's being tried. Um, yeah, when yeah, when it first comes up for trial, go through the arraignment, whatever. But when it actually gets set for trial, a lot of times the pleas are negotiated and completed on the day of. So when the judge announced or when they announce the case, usually the state attorney or, or the you know the prosecutor will say, you know, we've come to a resolution in this matter, blah blah blah, before they go into like jury selection and things like that. So. That would be a question to ask. Was there a plea? A, if there wasn't, like you said, did he plead guilty only because 
he saw that they were still going to be able to go move forward with the trial without this guy who he just whacked. Or, you know, there's a, there's a couple of different questions there that we could ask to try to find out, which may help steer the investigation a certain way. But I think there's a, it's a lot of circumstantial evidence, but I think there's a lot that points towards that he was involved and he definitely has knowledge of, he may not be directly, like, let's say he may not have said it, but in his group of, you know, friends or workers or whatever they call themselves, the organized crime gang or whatever they are, maybe that's just standard operating procedure. You get arrested, they know they got to whack people, you know, they got to get rid of people. So maybe that's just something they do, you know what I'm saying? So there's like a lot of avenues you can go from there if you're going to start looking in the, into the background of, of all of that, naturally, 30 years ago. So, you know, it's all of it, law enforcement, the court system, everything's been changed as technology moves forward. So I, I kind of am in agreement with, with what they thought, you know, what they thought happened. And until you have something to kind of disprove it or, or make the story go a different way, I think. It's a good working plan or a good, you know, working story to to start with. Um, and then again, until he's found or if he's ever found, that's really going to answer a lot more questions, you know. But at this point, who knows, you know, unless somebody Great. comes forward. So, well, we have one question. The question is once again for me and not for you. Okay, I'll sit here quietly. It's from Megan. So, hi, Megan. Thanks for the question. I'm not going to say hi to her because she didn't include me in it. <laughs> I think you'll like the question once you hear it. Though. Hi, Megan. Hello. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the question. Just kidding. Also, my middle name is Megan. So, fun fact. Certainly. Is. That's your in trouble name. That's, yeah, Cassie Megan. <laughs> okay. So, she says, in one of the episodes, you mentioned Cassie's great singing voice. Any chance we can hear you sing? Wow. All right. That is for you. Because I certainly—I was going to say, do you want? You can take it if you want. No, no. We all know what happens when I sing. So I'm going to. I'll attach a clip of me singing at the end. It has to be really short, unfortunately, because we don't want to get sued for copyright. And originally, I was going to do "Think of Me" from Phantom of the Opera because that's your favorite. It is my favorite that you've sang in the past. But I decided to do Summertime from Porgy and Bess because I think it's so old that there's uh, less of a chance of getting sued. And I, you know, okay, I'm trying not to get sued by uh, yeah, Andrew Lloyd Webber, you know? Yeah, let's not get sued by him. We'll give him all the props and stuff and we're not making money off of it. So, yeah. So I'm just I'll, there'll be a short clip at the end of this. So if you if you want to hear it, feel free to listen. If you don't, well, you can just log off right now. There you go. So there you go, Megan. Me, 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 me. There you go. That's me. Oh, dang. That was actually kind of good. You like that? You like yeah. That? Okay. Right. Dang. We might have to do a duet. Oh, my. I don't think so. But all right. All right. Well, you get, until you get next... the high notes. I'll get the low notes. Yeah, you have to do the low notes. Oh, for sure. <laughs> okay. So until next week. Bye. Bye.
So hush, little baby. Oopsie.